0: As we noted last week, Paul's letter to the Romans is one of the most important documents in the New Testament, and it's one of the most misunderstood, at least by those who have read it. In the first session, we looked at some basics about Paul's letters in general, and Romans in particular, including how it's been interpreted down through the centuries. In part two, we consider alternative readings that do justice to what it must have been like to live for Christ in the Roman Empire title of this study is reading Romans again for the first time. It kind of has two parts to it, one is the first time and the other is what does it mean to read it again. If we can just back up for a minute, I want to refresh your memory on something from last time. The notion of reading it for the first time, really we looked at three key moments in church history when the teachings of Paul in the book of Romans got taken down a certain road. Uh, The one that we mentioned first was St. Augustine on original sin back in the 5th century. The Reformers, the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century on faith and salvation. And then lastly, more recent development, the conservative reading of Romans 1 on homosexuality. And so we looked at all three of those things. But the question that I asked near the end Of last week was but what if these readings missed something crucial to understanding Romans and that crucial thing is context now to be clear every commentary on Romans begins with context in fact every commentary begins pretty much the same way before they get to chapter 1 verse 1 they'll have all kinds of sections like date when it was written and authorship and composition and then commentaries on Romans would have at least these two sections something about location capital of the Roman Empire and something about the makeup of the congregation in this case a mix of Jew and Gentile so every commentary begins with that and then to be honest for the most part they mostly ignore it the rest of the time these scholars who've paid attention to these things in the intro ignore them because Romans has come down to us through the years focused more on doctrines, like the three we mentioned with Augustine, the Reformers, and homosexuality debate, and they've ignored the context. So along comes what they call an anti-commentary. This is a book by Matt and Walsh called Romans Disarmed, and their stress is challenging empire, particularly the Roman Empire. So early on in the book, they recall an ad from Coca-Cola. Well, at least it's a play on Coca-Cola. There's the familiar red banner, the, the white fancy script, and underneath that, the real thing, and then the white swoosh kind of going through the whole thing. Except instead, it's Jesus Christ, the real thing. Anybody looking at it says, oh, they're playing off the Coke ad, but Coke's not mentioned. They bring this up to make a point about Romans, and that is if Jesus is Lord, which Paul clearly says he is, well then what of Caesar? If Coca-Cola is playing off of, or Jesus Christ is playing off of Coca-Cola in the ad, what Paul would be doing is in a sense challenging a familiar, so to speak, ad that Caesar was Lord. There's no way that anyone listening to the reading of Romans, remember Phoebe delivered it for Paul, as she read this, there's nobody that could have missed the kind of sedition and challenge to the Empire when Paul talks about Jesus as Lord. So what if it turns out that Romans isn't about doctrines, theology, and the abstract? but What if it's really about Rome? I mean, it's there in the title. These authors, and Romans disarmed, they call it streaming video in the first century. Here's what they mean. We know what streaming video is now and how we're inundated with images by the hundreds, if not thousands, every day. They give some examples of what that would have been like in the first century, and believe it or not, it was there. Everywhere you looked in Rome, there would be monuments to Caesar, which at the time was Nero, but various Caesars, and to the gods. Rome had many gods. There would be statues both in public and in homes. Almost every kitchen would have had a statue of different gods, and offerings would be made to different gods depending on the time of year for harvest and for good weather. Uh, Coins. Coins had the imperial image uh, of imagery of the the Caesars, and like you can find coins with Nero's name on it, I'll come back to one of those later. And of course, even wine and meat were related to idols and to different gods. In a sense, what Rome proclaimed through all of this quote unquote streaming video in the first century was that the gods are on the side of those with power. God has appointed Nero to be the emperor and, and to be the Lord. And those who have power, those are favored people. And then along comes Phoebe delivering Paul's letter. In the very first verse of Romans, Paul borders on, really you could call it sedition within the Roman Empire. Here's how the first verse reads. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures, the gospel concerning his son. Now, be honest, to a lot of us, that sounds like, eh, first verse of a letter from Paul, and it's kind of boring. Can we just keep on going? But actually, there are so many things happening in just this first verse and the first few verses that really set up Paul's challenge to the empire. For instance, he says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Well, there are two words for servants in the Greek. One of them is actually the word that we call deacon. That's a Greek word that we didn't even translate, diakonos. It's a servant. But the other one is doulos, and that's a slave. And that's the one that's used here, even if English translations don't always capture it. Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. He begins by identifying with the lowest in that society, and it's beginning of his indictment against the empire which was built on slavery as we'll see in a few minutes in that same verse he says called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of god and later the gospel concerning his son the word gospel we get from the king james but it really means good news although in this case the background is it was the kind of good news that armies announced when they had won a battle or the war. So you could, in this sense, translate it, the proclamation of the triumph of God. So instead of the victories, of military victories of Caesar, Nero, or whoever, this would be the victory of God. He goes on to say that this Jesus was descended from David and declared to be son of God by resurrection. As it turns out, Emperor Nero descended from Augustus, Was proclaimed by decree to be the son of a god. In other words, Augustus was this god figure, Nero is the son of a god, but Jesus descends not from that kind of line, but from the line of David, and he is vindicated by resurrection. He continues in the last part of that verse Jesus Christ, our Lord. Of course, the, the, the Caesars, Nero included, were always proclaimed as Lord. That was part of the propaganda, not Jesus. And then the last thing he says is he has an eagerness to proclaim the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Whereas Rome took its gospel, its so-called good news, which was really the peace of Rome, but it, it happened through military conquest. And he took it to the Mediterranean world. Paul will bring God's gospel to Rome. That alone is radical. The problem is We've domesticated the radical nature of Romans by spiritualizing Paul's vocabulary. We're going to look at a couple of verses later in chapter 1, but listen to the words that we're going to encounter there. My hunch is, you've heard these before, in a Sunday school lesson or in a sermon. They permeate church life. Here they are, four terms, gospel, salvation, righteousness, and faith. I mean, what are those if not church words? But here's the problem. They weren't heard that way by the Roman ears at the time. So here's the passage that we're looking at. It's in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. Very famous passage. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. As it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. Now for Rome, we're we're looking at that, that word gospel, right? It's right there in the first line, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For Rome, we already said this, good news typically associated with military victory. But for Paul, it's a signal of Jesus' victory Only the good news of his victory comes by his laying down his life, killed by the Romans, but vindicated by resurrection. This word gospel that he uses, he's gonna use it five times in the first few verses of Romans. But hear the play there. This isn't a Sunday school word. It's a word of societal and political implications that instead of military victory, has happened through the sacrifice of Jesus. The next word is salvation. It is the power of God for salvation. I mentioned the reformers but really even before that in the early centuries there were lots of church fathers who were fighting battles of heresy. Lots of people trying to figure out what were Christians supposed to believe and not believe. And again in the Reformation They weren't battling heresy per se, but they were trying to reform the Catholic Church, and then some broke off. But salvation, in both instances, was thought of as this personal, more so than communal act, and it was about a reward in the afterlife. How is it that a person comes to be saved? Most of us have heard that language. But for Paul, salvation is communal. It's the whole community, we would say the church. But in his case, the backdrop is Israel is saved as a community from occupying armies. Think about how is Israel saved from Egyptian bondage? God brings them out, saves them from that. How is Israel saved 1,000 years later when the Assyrians or the Babylonians attack? Again, it's God's saving them from occupying armies. If that was true in the Old Testament, Paul uses that to then kind of serve as a backdrop for what he's saying about Rome. Rome is yet another empire like the Egyptians and the Assyrians and the Babylonians that are thwarting the ways of the people of God. The third word is righteousness. I suspect if we handed out a piece of paper and asked everybody to write down their definition, most people think of that as some kind of right living or the holiness of God Or the holiness of followers living the right way but for Paul the word it really is in Greek justice he's talking about justice and what he means by that is the right thing done in society in fact last week when we looked at Romans 1 and the passage that supposedly talks about homosexuality the word that he keeps using there is wickedness but in Greek it's injustice Paul's not concerned here with some spiritual thing per se, but to be clear, the spiritual has societal implications. He's he's talking about justice. And of course, if there was anything unjust, it was the ways of the Roman Empire and the emperors. And then you have that one little word at the end, one who is righteous will live by You ask most people and they would say, well, that's a personal response of trusting in God. But as we noted last week, for Paul, likely it's the faithfulness of God. He he quotes, and he's quoting there from Habakkuk. And that verse, the one who is righteous will live by faith, could actually be read to say, will live by God's faithfulness. By the way, the context in that quote in Habakkuk a critique of yet another empire, the Chaldeans, which again would serve as a backdrop for Paul's critique of the Roman Empire. So if I can just kind of put this in context, Paul in the book of Romans, and let's face it, it's a very hard book to understand, but this much becomes very clear. 51 times in Romans Paul will quote from the Old Testament. He doesn't do so to prove that Jesus is Messiah, or for some other spiritual purpose. Overwhelmingly, the passages he quotes from are references to exile. Those are times when Israel in the Old Testament was taken captive by another invading army. And when he references different Psalms throughout Romans, they are almost always laments. And laments aren't personal sadness, they're overwhelmingly Israel's corporate sadness being taken captive by another army. Last week we mentioned how Paul lists 21 vices in Romans 1. 15 of those, and there's no way to see this in the English, but 15 of those in Greek have economic implications. One other thing on the critique of the Roman Empire. You can look this up on Google and you'll find the image. Just put coins with Nero's image on it. In one of them, on the flip side, on the tail side, is the image of a Roman soldier. His boot is on the head of someone who has been conquered. It's a symbol of victory over enemies, or as they would have said, the gospel. But near the end of Romans, Paul writes this, The God of peace will shortly crush Satan under your feet. The God of peace will shortly crush Satan under your feet. Now, most of us reading that would say, oh, the devil. But no, he says Satan. This is a term from the Old Testament, and it doesn't refer to the devil at all. It refers to and literally means the adversary. The adversary. Clearly, anyone hearing Phoebe read Paul's letter, hearing that would know who the adversary is. It's Nero himself and the empire. So, we mentioned how commentaries on Romans begin with the context and then tend to ignore it, but Paul doesn't. But what if, having examined Paul's critique of empire, what about his treatment of the makeup of the congregation, this notion of Jew and Gentile? Well, turns out that's related to empire as well. So, just a kind of brief overview empire is always about power and privilege for the few at the expense of the many. So for instance, in Roman society, there was a recognized stratification. You would have the emperor at the top and the elites, then you would have workers and of course, slaves. Unfortunately, that stratification also applied to some of the Christ followers. In particular, Jew and Gentile tensions. Listen to just a few passages. I'll read some selected verses. It's from chapters 12 and 14 and 15. I say to everyone among you, notice, not to the Jew or the Gentile, to everyone, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought. Or how about this one, chapter 12 again, outdo one another in showing honor. In the Roman Empire, you only showed honor to the elites. But Paul wants them to show honor to everyone, even the slaves within the body. Chapter 14, why do you pass judgment on your brother or sister? Chapter 15, welcome one another, therefore, just as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. In some ways, you could say there is Romans in one verse. It's kind of a bold statement, but you get the idea. Paul wants them to welcome each other, Jew and Gentile, socioeconomic stratification. Everybody is to welcome everybody and show honor. Well, why? Because that's what God has done to us. God has welcomed us, therefore we should be welcoming. There is an interesting kind of premise going around nowadays that one of the ways to understand Romans is to read it backwards. They don't mean literally word for word backwards, but the idea is to start with that second section, chapters 12 through 16, and then you could go to chapters 1 and 11 with some understanding of the context. If you take it a little bit more literally though, the 16th chapter of Romans, well, you really just need to read it for yourself. Paul greets by name 21 persons. Greet so-and-so, greet so-and-so. I heard a sermon by Fred Craddock on this once, and it's not very compelling. In fact, Fred began his sermon by saying, I will understand if your heart was not all a flutter at the reading of the text. Paul names 21 persons, but if you pay close attention, Some are Jewish names, some are Greek names, and some are Latin. This gives us some sense of the context. Now, a lot of people say that if you want to understand Romans, you've got to figure out who the weak and the strong are. Look at chapter 14 and chapter 15, and you'll see what we're talking about. Chapter 14, welcome those who are weak in faith, but not for the purpose of quarreling over opinions. There are so many theories on who they were. Some people say it was tension between Jewish and Gentile believers, and they were meeting in house churches. Some say, no, it was between the non-Christian Jews and the believing Jews and Gentiles, and they were still meeting in the synagogue. And then others say, no, it was Jewish and Gentile believers, but it was mostly socioeconomic. It is interesting that the, the little phrase, welcome those who are weak in faith, could be better translated, welcome in faithfulness those who are weak and that word can easily mean those who are poor. It's not really clear. If scholars are still debating it, it's not really clear. Here is something that is crystal clear, however, in Romans. Economic inequality. Remember I said that's just part and parcel of an empire. 40% of the population in Rome at the time of Paul were slaves. And you could guarantee that if you were a slave, you would be abused sexually. If a woman gave birth, if a slave woman gave birth, her children would be taken as slaves. Even those who were not slaves, Jewish and Gentile believers who maybe worked for Roman households, they could lose their income for not being worshipers of the emperor. And around 80% of the congregation would have been living on the edge just trying to survive. There is one other context that we might want to think about and that is now. What does empire look like now? Scholars call this post-colonial criticism, looking at how colonial powers, think Rome, think the British Empire, think the United States, and how do empires work? Well, three strategies, military control, Check. Socioeconomic strategies benefiting the few. Check. But that's not enough. You also need myths or meta narratives of benevolence and prosperity. So let me expand just for a moment. I've been thinking about what would empire look like in a democracy? Not with a Caesar, but with checks and balances and voting. Well, the military. Is a defender of freedoms, no question, but has often been misused by leaders for political gain. Economies are often pro-business, nothing wrong with that, but sometimes that's oppressive of the poor. I read just this week that there is no county in the United States where a person on minimum wage can rent a two-bedroom apartment in that location. That's shocking. But if military and economy is not enough, it's the stories we tell ourselves or that are told to us. How about this one? You can be anything you want in this great country. Well, maybe, depending on where you were born, family of origin. But think about it. You could have been born a sex slave in the Roman Empire or even now. Could have been born in Syria or Honduras. In the book, reading Romans in North America, is, uh, or in the book Romans Disarmed, they, they imagine what it's like to read Paul's letter here in the context of North America. They're Canadian, and so they, they look at Canada with um, the indigenous peoples there, and then they look at the United States. And they have what's called Jewish targums, where they take Paul's letter and they kind of paraphrase it to think about what it means for us now. And it's quite powerful. I encourage you to look at it. Um, One of the passages, they have this verse from Romans. You see, my friends, if love is genuine, we must hate what is evil and hold fast to what is good. That's a passage that's in Romans. It's interesting, though. They paraphrase it. If we're going to love women, we must hate misogyny. If we're going to love our Muslim neighbors, we must hate Islamophobia. If we're going to love our LGBTQ siblings, we must hate homophobia and transphobia. You see, my friends, if love is genuine, we must hate what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Well, thanks for joining us in this study of Romans. I have to say, it is one of the hardest books to understand, but maybe looking at chapter 16 and working backwards will help.